man, forget the rules, man. Forget the rules. That, that's the idea. That forget the rules. Like we don't need some cookie cutter curriculum that somebody designed that that doesn't work with our kids. Like, you know, break all the rules. Like that's the problem. You know, I've always done more learning outside of the classroom than inside the classroom. Um, give the kids the stuff that they need. Give the kids act. Give the kids access to the technology. Give them educators who's not gonna restrain them from using it. From using it, like, and let them let them create. This is no such thing. A podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. What do cryptocurrency, 360 cameras, and hip hop education have in common? So far, I only have one answer, and his name is Emil Cook. He's a teacher at Propel Andrew Street Charter School in Pittsburgh, and he sees educators as DJs for learning. The mantra he shared at the head of the show feels pretty important. If I think back to all the times in my life that I can remember consciously breaking the rules, most of them led to rewards that I couldn't have anticipated. Consciously is an important word. Sometimes in our roles, we can see things in a way that others can't, and a lot of times those perspectives, the outside ones, keep us from pushing the envelope. Sometimes the conscious decision to break the rules is the only responsible option when we consider our choices and ideals up against one another. My conversation with Emil Cook highlights some opportunities that excited me when I first heard about them, because they were totally novel instances where an educator was consciously pairing these specific technologies with learning experiences at the high school level. I have the feeling that you might be interested as well. And while Emil and I, along with newly graduated senior Denver, didn't get to answer as many detailed questions as I had hoped, our conversation took some exciting twists and turns. A technical note, this interview is virtual, and so you may hear a little lag or feedback. Emil is also in a functioning school, so as you can imagine, there are students coming and going in the room on his end of the interview. I cleaned it up as best I can, and I hope it hits your ears without too much distraction. Another thing, my interview with Emil made me really excited about going deeper on the question of hip-hop education and the ways that hip-hop and youth's digital lives uniquely contribute as partners for learning. If you have episode ideas, subjects, people who I should dig into in order to further that conversation, grab my attention over Twitter, at M.A. Lesser, and let me know. Enjoy this talk with Emil in Denver. Emil, thank you both for joining the show. I'm I'm uh, grateful to have you on No Such Thing. This is uh, a treat for me to talk more with folks who are doing amazing things in Pittsburgh. So uh, thanks for joining. Thanks for having us. Thank you, um, Emil. I did a little um, a little homework, and it, it it correct me if I'm wrong, but you went to Boston Latin. Correct. Uh, tell me about the journey from from Boston to Pittsburgh. Um, I mean, the journey was um, un, uh, unexpected. I mean, I wasn't planning on ever landing in a town like Pittsburgh, um, but you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I landed in this town. Um, I think in a lot of ways, Boston and Pittsburgh have some s- similarities. Uh, they're both, you know, small, um, but but influential metropolitan areas. Um, of course, Boston being a historic uh, foundational center of American 
colonial power and stuff like that makes makes Boston a little bit more prestigious and different. But I think Pittsburgh also has like, you know, a leading role here in the Midwest, like approaching the Midwest. Um, yeah, it was it was I didn't plan on coming to Pittsburgh. It just kind of ended up working out that way. I got my graduate. I got accepted to a graduate assistantship program at the University of Clarion University of Pennsylvania. Uh, so I I took the graduate assistantship. It was called the Frederick Douglass Graduate Assistantship, which was for HBCU graduates um, who wanted to pursue uh, graduate school. So I came on up to Pennsylvania for that reason, and then I ended up staying. I was I had a I had a family at a young age too. So you know I um, I brought my family up, and we just we found Pennsylvania like a nice place to live. It was affordable you know, in comparison to, you know, New England area. So it made a lot of economic sense and, um, you know, helped me towards my career goals. Uh, our, our paths uh, or our journeys crossed in Boston at, at some point, maybe. Um, I started my work in education uh, with an organization called Citizen Schools in Boston. And, uh, and, and so I know, I think uh, part of what hooked me into this work and, um, and the, the, my journey, uh, also started with, with Boston public school. So I was excited to see you there. Can I ask what, what, where did you grow up in Boston? I'm from Mission Hill, Roxbury. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to the, I went, um, public school, Boston public kid from kindergarten all the way up to 12th grade. Um, you know, I had some great teachers. I had amazing experience. I'm from Mission Hill, Mission Park um, area of Roxbury. Um, I had a fantastic upbringing there in um, inner city Boston, and I couldn't ask for a better couldn't ask for a better upbringing and, and all that. Yeah. Well, so so now flash forward, um, and the way that we got connected was from uh, our our mutual colleague uh, Ani Martinez at mm-hmm. uh, Remake Learning Network in Pittsburgh, and and it sounded like uh, from the couple of people who, uh, as I started to dig around for educators who I need to talk to in the space of uh, digital learning in Pittsburgh, your name came up more than once. Tell me about your role at uh, Propel. Um, and specifically uh, what it is you're teaching, because I think a lot of educators who hear some of the stuff, the programming and the classes that we're going to talk about, um, I think are going to want to know sort of where you're positioned within the school. Okay, um, so at Propel Industry, what I teach, I teach a um, graphic design course, which uh, is designed to give the kids um, introductory lessons into graphic design, utilizing the Adobe graphic design products like Photoshop and Illustrator. So the students get exposure to those two, primarily those two uh, software suites, uh, software programs. I also do implement some Adobe Premiere, which is video editing into that graphic design class. Um, so they get a you know outline and they get a, a background in like things like topography, um, layout, you know, f- manipulating uh, photos, um, illustration, uh, vector, and rast- the difference between vector and raster-based graphics, um, you know, some basic design principles that we go over. Um, and then it's really like a lot of it's just really them creating and being creative. 
So that's one course I teach. The second course I teach is um, hip hop studies class, which is um, it's really what I do with hip hop education. And um, really, we, we do with that class. It's almost um, it's a it's a multidisciplinary course that really involves like social sciences, social studies um, mixed with culture, cultural studies or African-American history and um, and then, you know, creative arts. It's kind of all all um, combined into one, and then it also involves um, media literacy, digital digital literacies as well. Um, so that class, we really go down into the foundation of hip hop, um, how hip hop emerged in the in the seventies, um, how how it's evolved through the eighties and nineties into today's era. Um, we look at you know some of the guiding principles of hip hop, you know peace, love, unity, and having fun. We also look at the elements of hip hop, you know, like DJ breakdancing, graffiti, uh, MC and, and D, DJ, and I think, uh, oh, and the knowledge itself, the five, the five core elements. But then we also look at other frameworks and other uh, modalities, like some designed by Karis, one that involved like street entrepreneurialism, street language, um, you know, beatboxing and, and, and adding more elements to those core elements. And then we, so we do heavy doses of lyrical analyses, lyric writing, um, video analysis. Um, we also look at the, the, the historical um, realities that affected the context of hip hop across time. So we look at things like mm. from chrono- chronologically, we also look at the larger social issues that's addressed in hip hop. Uh, we look at things like hypermasculinity, uh, misogyny. We look at um, entrepreneurialism in hip hop. So I yeah. love that that course. Um, and so that's that's the hip hop studies. Can you give me an example of um, like just just to pull some of this out because you said so much mm-hmm. right there. Um, and I kind of I'd I'd like to take the class. I'll bet you a lot of people listening uh, would like to do it. But let's talk about something like hypermasculinity. Um, tell me how a, a lesson like that plays out in your class. Man, so it cause what? So like that's the thing about hip hop too. Is like a lot of it. Sometimes it involves like improv or freestyle. So I might approach a lesson with a certain topic, um, and we might. We might start a dialogue about hypermasculinity and then I'll follow up. But um, I will basically dig into my toolbox of archives of songs or content that deals with hypermasculinity. And then we, we would we would address it. So students, um, you know, I might play in. For instance, there's a famous documentary that came out in 2003, which like for the students is now that's so old. It's called Beyond Beats and Run by um, scholar and um, filmmaker Byron Hurt. And in that film, he really delves deep into hypermasculinity. So I, I'll take out select portions of that film, look at hypermasculinity from there. Um, you know, we might look at Jay-Z's full, full, full album and talk about um, some of the issues of hypermasculinity that he addressed in the 444 album, where he talked about his infidelity with Beyonce and his inability to be vulnerable with a woman and communicate, you know, his emotions and feelings. Um, we'll look at um, maybe some tracks from from some leading hip hop um, 
artists who are women and 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 take their take on um, hypermasculinity and and things like that. And then really then then uh, also it involved reflexive questions to the students like how do you feel like what does it feel to be a man what what makes a man what what are you taught how are you socialized to think this what this is what a man is and at this age this pivotal mm-hmm. age of being an adolescent teenager a lot of our students are really faced with these challenges on a day to day basis where they they may be under the mis misunderstanding that what gives them value is uh, you know, the amount of muscles that they have, their ability to, you know, leverage violence or, mm. you know, their, their street reputation. Um, so, you know, we just really just break those things down. I might use a Meek Mill song, Young Black America, where he really highlights, you know, a lot of these pitfalls, the pitfalls of hypermasculinity. Um, so there's so much. I mean, right now, hip hop is in such a valuable, rich space where we have podcasts we have interviews like the breakfast club and sway in the morning we have you know we have rap radar we have the combat jack show uh we have um so many uh tax season we have so many like platforms and podcasts and youtube channels from dj vlad to dj small eyes where they're capturing these narratives of people like communicating like their mentality, their psychology, their growth, their process of being of uh, uh, enamored with hypermasculinity or being under the sway of hypermasculinity and then their path out of that. That's captured in media. And the question is, and my job as an educator, hip hop educator, is to kind of curate that. So it's to take that mm. and kind of like skim off the fat and just you know, present to students with that um, in a, in a, in with, um, with a thought about timeliness, right? I don't want to, I don't, we don't have time to watch a one hour and 45 minute uh, podcast, which would be of course very boring for the students. But, you know, I think this is an ever growing role of, of myself and other hip hop educators, other pop culture educators is that basically we need to kind of come on top of the media, the digital media that's being created and almost add in that meta, that, that educational metadata. Where's the educational Mm. value on this video? Where's the educational, every video, every video, every, every podcast, every interview, there's educational metadata that needs to be tagged um, that we can then direct our students to, to, continue mm. the dialogue. So that's really what, what I try to do. So I almost, I, I almost see myself as a DJ in the classroom. Um, I'm pulling this resource. I'm sampling this. I'm sa- I'm taking a sample from that. I'm pulling this in and then I'm gauging, I'm engaging the crowd and I'm seeing what's the crowd's reaction. If the crowd is falling asleep, it might be time, time to change the tempo or, you know, change the tune. I love DJ in the classroom. Uh, that really is, um, you know, that's, that's such a, a big part of the role. Yeah, man. That's a, like that, that go, that's a shout out to the hip hop ed community. Like we, we've been breaking that down, like how much a, a hip hop a, a educator is like a DJ, you know, because a DJ, they bring like this, this knowledge, this vast knowledge of like what's in their crates and what's, what's in their catalog of, of music, you know, and then they go and find that one record. They find that record that's needed. Um, 
You know, so that's the same thing for educated. Like in my mind, like when you ask me that question about hypermasculinity, I'm like, in my mind, I'm like seeing like a Rolodex, right? And I'm like going through it, like mm. which which videos on YouTube, which tracks I'm gonna pull up, and um, yeah, you know that that's really like that's really what our job is is to curate and and develop these, um, like I said, this educational metadata. So you know that's something I see myself doing more more and more in the future. Yeah, for the for the educator who doesn't know. Um, doesn't know hip hop culture. I think one important point is that, uh, you might say DJ for the classroom or DJ for the program or wherever you're an educator. Um, I think it's important to know, uh, the role of the DJ historically is, is like when, when, uh, hip hop first started, it wasn't, it wasn't so, uh, first of all, we're not talking about a wedding DJ. Uh, which is what a lot of people think of when they hear DJ. Uh, we're talking about what what was um, once the front of the bill. It wasn't the MC that got all the credit. It was the DJ, and it's because that's where the knowledge was. It's where what kept the party going. It it was what um, really made the experience the experience, and the the MC was more the hype uh, and, and kind of the sideshow in a way. And I think that's changed a lot, but I think to appreciate the, the original role of the DJ is a, is a really fun thing to think about a new frame to think about, uh, the role of the educator, because that really is, um, especially as we make the shift into a more digital culture, um, and students have access to so much, um, I think it's a powerful way to to sort of paint that role and and uh, and think more about it. You did some work with uh, 360 uh, cameras and youth who are doing documentary work uh, on their neighborhoods, and and you are joined by a student named Denver today. Denver's a senior at uh, Propel uh, Charter School, and and Denver, I'm just curious if you wouldn't mind describing a little bit about your experience in that program. So the program, it wasn't exactly a program, but it was more like just a project. It was a class. It started off as a class. And then we wanted to go to, what was it, Digital Divide? It was the um, Youth Leading Change Summit. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. So we wanted to, we got asked to present a project there. We wanted to present a project that you can see more of Pittsburgh, I guess you could say that. So the project consisted of us going around Pittsburgh with a 360 camera. We had to uh, like a like a, a stick, put it outside the van and just recorded wealthier areas and then more impoverished areas and then compared the two and then put it together. And what was it? What editing program was like Adobe Premiere. Yeah, Adobe Premiere. And then we presented it at the Youth Leading Change Summit. And tell me about, for those who don't know, the Youth Leading Change Summit, uh, just share what that is. So the Youth Leading Change Summit, it's a yearly, um, it's an annual um, summit that's held um, typically on the Hill District um, in Pittsburgh. It's hosted by um, Dr. Lovelace, Dr. Temple Lovelace with uh, Duquesne University Education Center. And um, really what it seeks to do is bring together students across the city um, and really build in youth leadership um, and provide workshop opportunities for students to attend um, arts 
arts education, arts workshops, and really just get, get young people together dialoguing about relevant issues in education, relevant issues in their lives. Um, so that happens on a yearly basis. So last year we got asked to present. So like Denver was saying, we, we, we were coming up with this, an idea, something innovative that we wanted to highlight because it, it was a part of my, um, a course that I was offering called IT Explorations, where we really like kind of just did a survey of like what's happening in the IT or information technology landscape. We ended up kind of like getting into the 3D, 360 cameras. So the students really came up with the whole concept of doing like, let's do a 360 um, analysis or 360 immersive experience where students can actually see what it's like to live in one of these impoverished neighborhoods. And then we could also see the proximity and see what it's like to live in a, a more affluent neighborhood. So, you know, that was really, really student generated. Um, and it was, well, it was, you know, we, we stitched it together. Denver brought to bear his video editing skills. And there was just some minor um, adjustments that we needed to make with the videos being 3D or 360, which they're kind of spherical. And you have to do a little tweaking to the files to make them, to stitch them together. But um, we were we were able to do it without a without a big significant issue, and we pieced, we pitched it together, and it's on YouTube. We we can um, provide you a link to the to the 360 experience. Yeah, I think I think we'll want to link to them in the show notes for the episode because um, people are going to want to see them. I think one of the things that really interested me about what you um, what these students came up with is is there's a lot of of hype and, and dialogue about. Um, 360 and um, VR and immersive experience in the context of sort of uh, the ed tech world, the the kind of uh, commercial world of how technology intersects with uh, K-12 education. Um, I found that this approach from these students to be one of the first that I've seen to be uh, really a, a um, transformative in a way that I think characterizes the kind of ideals that people are talking about immersion as uh, potentially being able to um, trigger. And so, mm -hmm. so I'm I'm really curious, Denver, to hear from you when when. Uh, first of all, when you presented the project, I'm curious to hear what people's reactions were and uh, whether you feel like it it did what you set out to have it do. When we presented it, we were in a, a little room and then we each had we had like eight or nine VR headsets and then the phones were provided through the funds that we received from the Youth Leading Change Summit. And initially, everyone was like kind of iffy on it, but as more people started trying it, they were like, oh, this is pretty cool, pretty cool. Then went through the whole video. They ended up really liking it. And honestly, I think it got our point across what we were looking to do in the first place. What What was it that you were looking to do? Just to provide a, a, a different view of Pittsburgh. And was it yeah. – um, it, it sounded from what uh, – Emil, you described – um, the point was actually to, um, give 
a sense of of what it is to live in the communities where these students are living and then and then part of it was about the contrast between um uh you know the neighborhood neighborhoods where they're not living and uh where they are but can you talk about um who who was the audience for this and um and was the point about um the contrast or was the point about um sort of calling attention to neighborhoods that that aren't getting associated with Pittsburgh and being able to sort of lift up what those communities um, offer. We wanted to show the contrast between impoverished areas and impoverished areas and different to just give a different view out on Pittsburgh. Yeah. Yeah, I think the um, Denver hit the nail on the head. Like, I think we wanted to show, we wanted to highlight the fact that, you know, a lot of time in the press, Pittsburgh gets labeled America's most livable city. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great city to live in, um, especially if you, if you're socially mobile and you have education and, you know, all the prerequisites to be successful or have some type of economic stability here in the United States. But, um, um, Pittsburgh has a, has a big, um, problem with urban poverty and there's a lot of um, disproportionate poverty that affects black and Latino. Well, primarily in Pittsburgh, we really don't have a strong, a large Latino community, but um, primarily African-American communities are um, experiencing higher rates of poverty and all the associated social realities that that go along with poverty. Um, So we really wanted to highlight that, you know, where our students come from. And um, and then also contrasted because like less than a mile away, we have houses that are upwards of uh, half a million dollars. And it's a whole different world that those young people and those families and communities are are, are, are existing in. Yeah, it's a it's a phenomenon in um, so many cities in this country. And mm-hmm. um, I'm curious from both of your perspectives, but uh, Amila, somebody who has uh, worked in in Pittsburgh as a um, you know a, a context for an educator, I'm I'm curious, and as somebody who has ha- grew up in a different urban environment, but but one that um, equally we could talk about uh, neighborhoods in Boston that uh, you know butt up against one another, where you're moving from the lowest. Uh, tax bracket to the highest tax bracket uh, quite easily. The the other interesting thing is that there's the connection between Boston and Pittsburgh as sort of a um, as a tech hub um, and a city that went from sort of a the one sort of commercial industrial identity to a, a very different one. And um, anyway, I wanted to ask you how you both feel about what what the difference is, um, or or maybe there aren't between young people growing up in Pittsburgh today and um, how is it different in Pittsburgh from any other city in the country uh, for, you know, and, and I mean that in all ways, uh, positives, deltas and things you're working on. I'm curious what it's like to be a young person in Pittsburgh today. What are some positives or some negatives comparing Pittsburgh to like another city? Um, I think Pittsburgh it's, it's behind in, in terms of um, pro- progressive um, racial politics or um, it's behind in a lot of ways. So, you know, there's no 
there's no, there's never been a black mayor in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, I don't think that African Americans have a strong political base or economic base in a city like Pittsburgh. It's not like uh, Washington D.C. or uh, Atlanta or Charlotte or um, you know even New York or Boston, where you have this um, vibrant and historic. Um, and I don't want to discredit anything that we, because you do have amazing histories here in Pittsburgh. Um, like the, the Pittsburgh Courier um, newspaper was the largest, most widely distributed um, black newspaper in America. It was based out of Pittsburgh. There's a, it was a tremendous jazz movement um, here in Pittsburgh that was one of, put Pittsburgh on the map as one of the leading jazz centers um, in the United States. Um, during the jazz era, probably from the 1920s to the 50s and 60s. Uh, you, you have August Wilson, of course, the famous playwright who, who um, emerged out of Pittsburgh. So Pittsburgh has definitely always had like a thriving African-American community. But I think that um, you just don't see African-Americans with the type of economic success and um, autonomy that you might see in other neighborhoods and cities. You know, if you're in New York, you go to Harlem, you have, you have black businessmen and black business districts. And um, I think it's, I think that's something you fail to see as, as um, easily. It may be, it may, it is here in Pittsburgh, but it's, it's a little bit below the surface. Um, so I think that that's, when it comes to the students, I think it makes it a little bit more challenging for them because um, they're like, I just want to spark their imagination. I just want them to see, there's a saying, um, a mentor, a mentorship saying from the 100 uh, Black Men of America, where they say, uh, "You'll be what you can see." And if you can't see businessmen, if you can't see entrepreneurs, if you can't see um, politicians and leaders and community leaders and uh, leaders in tech spaces and things like that, then you are going to be you're going to be limited in what you can even envision for yourself. So that's one of the areas that I would like to see Pittsburgh continue to develop. Um, I think, you know, Pittsburgh, the neighborhoods are really isolated, I think, in, um, due to the transit system and uh, really like a lot of the geography. So if you don't have a car, it's hard to travel to the different neighborhoods. So there's like black neighborhoods that's like sprinkled all throughout the city, but they're kind of like, isolated like so you know i think that makes it a little bit challenging to for for more um unity and more conversation mm -hmm. across and uh, across the entire african-american community so so that, that that's my assessment right there um well a lot you know yeah, go ahead. I hope that I hope that I hope that adds some clarity to kind of like what I see. Yeah, it does, and it it also I think one of the reasons that it's important um, is uh, in helping people understand why the the project was important the the three hundred and sixty project we just talked about. Um, I think the disconnect in terms of transportation, the um, you know, and and you know, sort of what the medium could afford for young people and what it means to have access to that medium. 
um, to be able to to lift up a voice that otherwise, um, you know, has has in in some ways been a very vibrant, as you described it, part of uh, Pittsburgh for generations, and in other ways. Um, you know, maybe is benefiting from a moment where, um, where we all have access to technologies and media that, that, uh, help us talk about what some of these contrasts are. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that context is really important. Yeah. Like specifically a lot of the students that attend, uh, this high school, which is Propel Andrew street. A lot of them come from the Monongahela Valley. That's called the Mon Valley. Like, um, that's Duquesne, that's Clareton, that's McKeesport, that's Homestead, uh, um, Penn Hills. Penn Hills. So, so like all these areas, like this river, there was a lot of steel, like Coke um, mills, Coke plants that used to employ, you know, many, many, many families. So this area used to once be a thriving, um, a thriving area where the communities you know, people had decent incomes, you know, strong middle class incomes. You know, people could graduate with a high school degree and go and get a job in the plant, um, you know, a generation or two ago. And then they could, you know, provide for their kids. So there there was a thriving neighborhood here. Now, what happened was in the 70s and 80s, you know, the, the steel mills and the coke plants and a lot of them shut down. They moved abroad with globalization. So really they left a hole in the economy here that hasn't really recovered since. Mm. So, you know, as you mentioned, Pittsburgh's transitioning to this new hub, this new tech center, this new startup city. But at the same time, these, these, these communities where I, I, I'm my, I get students from, they've been left behind, you know, um, and, previously the education was designed to prepare you for uh, a service sector job or, um, you know, um, um, a more of a manual labor type of position. Mm -hmm. Now that's not enough. Our students need more tech center education, more digital, um, digital skills, digital literacies um, and competencies. And, the curriculums haven't been adjusted. So while you have the jobs going overseas, the curriculums really weren't adjusted. So there was really a mismatch in terms of available jobs and the types of training that students were being exposed to in high schools. Um, so, you know, that's where I try to step in and bridge that bridge that divide. Um, but also, you know, not only just give the tech skills, but also give the critical social awareness of what's, what's the play, what's going on in society that can, that they can uh, take those skills and then leverage, leverage them appropriately. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about that. My, one of the questions that I had was, um, how you feel for, let's take the, this 360 project as an example. Um, what do you think are the, the, key takeaways from a project like that for the students that you're serving in Pittsburgh? Um, what, what are the most important aspects? I mean, I want them to know like, yo, you can make the most cutting edge type of stuff. Like the only reason that makes the New York times VR or 
you know, Wall Street Journal VR or whatever VR videos that you put, you search up on YouTube or when you go on Google and you look for cool VR experiences that pop up. The only reason that their thing pops up and not ours is because they have more active, they've had access longer, they have more funds and more technology and people to help put it together. But we have just the same skills and competencies and we can do the same thing and we could tell our story, you know. Um, so that's really what I want them to know, that that there's no real secret to the cutting edge. It's really just about access, having access and, and a vision and you can manifest it. So that's that's one of the main things I wanted them to take from it. Uh, it's interesting. Um I love I'm just writing down what you said about this there's no secret to the cutting edge which I think is a great um a great line and a great lesson um for for every young person mm-hmm. um and maybe we're maybe I don't know maybe that's over um overstating and maybe maybe there are some secrets because in a way you are sharing some secrets and and in a way that the secret is that um it's probably a lower bar than they assume it is um and that's really powerful but but uh you earlier you you um drew down a quote from marion wright edelman that i love and has come up on this podcast before uh you can't be what you can't see and i think that uh, one of the things that I love about what you're doing in Pittsburgh, and I want to transition to some of the other programming that you're doing, mm-hmm. um, is that uh, I think that for her, the context, uh, the meaning of that quote was possibly a little different. Who knows? I don't. I never. I never uh, got to ask. Um, but I do think that. At this point in time, that quote is as meaningful from uh, the perspective of um, considering what what innovation looks like and and the process of um, of building things and innovating and uh, the sort of iterative spirit. Um, I think that that goes with you can't be what you can't see. Um, as much as lots of other contexts, uh, whether it be about mentoring and, and, um, or health or all kinds of, all kinds of, uh, things. Um, so with that, you're doing some other really innovative things that I want to make sure, uh, we have some time to talk about. So, um, tell me about the, um, work that you're doing with cryptocurrency and, uh, and the program or the, the class that, uh, students are experiencing now related to uh, crypto and blockchain. Okay, then you wanna, you wanna start that yeah. one off? Mr. Cook introduced me to cryptocurrency last year and he was he was heavy on it last year. So he wanted to wanted us to make some money out of it. So I, at first I was like, why does he keep telling me about this? Like, I don't care. Like a normal teenager, whenever teacher or someone along those lines say something like that so i was like i don't want to do it like i don't want to do it then uh he told me to download this crypto wallet called exodus and then he said oh i'll send you some money over i was like all right why not so i i do it then he keeps sending me links on twitter just keeps keeps sending me links about videos of crypto i'm like "Uh, okay i can make some money out of this and Start looking through the videos, 
and I end up investing into Bitcoin, Gollum, Litecoin, and yeah, I think those were the three. I initially, and a little bit of Dash, a little bit of Dash. That's what I initially invested into and just built my knowledge from there, kept going from there. And yeah, that's where I that's where I got introduced into crypto. Mr. Cogan explained more about the program. Yeah. So in my IT explorations class, you know, I really felt like I just want to give my students like a like I said earlier, a, a great survey of what's really happening in technology. So naturally, I want to deal with blockchain technology. Interestingly, you know, we're talking about um, this. We're talking about social inequality or economic inequality. Uh, blockchain tech, we're talking about the digital divide. So it was perfect that blockchain technology is, is a, it's an economic and an investment opportunity. It also deals with like some cutting edge technology. Um, so it was like a perfect match to have as a component that I talk about in my classes. Plus I don't want to delay. Our students cannot afford to be behind the, um, the cutting edge or behind the eight ball when it comes to developments in technology. And that's really historically not been the position of the African-American you know, community. We've really been the leaders in the forefront of promoting and, and um, being early adopters on a lot of um, technological advancements. Um, you know, going back to the roots of hip hop with music production and, and DJ equipment and, you know, um, digital audio uh, workstations and, um, you know, so many different components from uh, beat drum machines, you know, all the way into then with, with like Black Planet and, uh, you know, the ad- adoptation of uh, Facebook and, and, and then the popularization of Instagram and Snapchat, you know, definitely, you know, Black Twitter and um, Black geeks and African-American community, hip hop community has really embraced those platforms. So I don't want our students to fall behind or be behind when it comes to Bitcoin, because once it hits or once it it really um, develops, you know, I, I don't want them coming to the dance late. I want them to be there early. Um, so we started looking at what is Bitcoin, how it works. Uh, we started learning how to study the, the market charts and um, also learning about the diversity in the cryptocurrency space. So um, really, tell, I just tell implement- me more about that. Excuse me. Tell me more about that, the diversity in the crypto space. Well, the diversity in the crypto space, meaning that is not just Bitcoin. You know, I think a lot of people, mm-hmm. when they think of like cryptocurrency, even the word currency, they think that crypto is all about money, but it's really not just about money. It's about, it's really about decentralized economies and decentralized networks and adding value to different networks. So, you know, I introduce students to things like um, there's, a, there's a social media platform called Steam, uh, as opposed to them sharing content on Twitter or Facebook, where the value of the generated clicks that they get, the platform gets, like Twitter gets more clicks if Denver posts an amazing video or makes an amazing comment in his tweet or, or same thing on Facebook. Facebook gets the traffic, Twitter gets the traffic, and they get to add revenue from that. The the user just gets the benefit of maybe more followers or more likes. There's a platform called Steam in which the participants actually get rewarded with a value token from the Steam platform itself that they can then use to take off the platform and convert it to Bitcoin or Litecoin or Ethereum or, you know, which then they can then 
convert into dollars. So really just kind of like teaching the students like this new Internet of money, the Internet of value and, and how that how this technology is really changing is going to change the way we invest in things, the way that we the type of economic opportunities that's available to students. And Denver was a, a student that already demonstrated like a high proclivity towards this type of um, thinking because he was already engaged in that from, you know, I, I don't uh, want to jump the gun, but, you know, Denver's been involved. He does YouTube, um, YouTube, make YouTube videos. And then he also like resells sneakers and things like that. So he's already like hip to the benefit of working independently and leveraging his skills and talents to make money on the, in the digital economy. So then, you know, with crypto, it's really like opening up a whole new investment channel for um for people like Denver. And, you know, interestingly, a lot of our students, and I've worked with a number of populations of students, like a lot of our students, they might not have a state ID. They might not have a driver's license. They might not have a debit card. I've got students that have been working two, three years consistently at jobs and don't have a debit card. Why? Because these jobs provide them with an ADP card or like a time card that's connected. It's almost like a prepaid debit. So when they get paid, it just goes on a debit card, but doesn't have their name on it. They can then, they, they can use their, their just like an ADP card. They can use it, but they can't necessarily order things from PayPal. So like teaching kids how to navigate that, right? So if you don't have a birth certificate and a social security card, then you might not be able to get, you might not be able to get a debit card from a traditional bank. So the crypto space is a space, if you have the wallet downloaded on your phone or your computer, you're instantly in the game and I can instantly send you funds. Now, you know, converting it into dollars is an extra step. There's extra steps involved in that, but at least they can begin to accumulate value, send and transact in these digital spaces in ways that they previously couldn't without all of these bureaucratical hoops and loops that they would have to jump through. So um, I feel like it's, it's, it's a revolutionary um, access point for, for many um, disenfranchised and marginalized communities. So that's why I'm, I'm in it and I'm um, advocating for it. And actually funny this, this past year, like, um, many hip hop artists came out talking about cryptocurrency and it's been like in a lot of different lyrics from your trap rappers who make really street, um, street, uh, street and criminal type raps to artists who have a more inspirational and positive upbeat, um, type of message. Uh, so it's, it's, it's permeating hip hop. And it's permeating where they're talking about crypto and, and using it as an investment platform. And, um, you know, some of the artists that's mentioned is 21 Savage, Nipsey Hussle, Uncle Murder and his wrap up for the year 2017. He talked about, uh, you know, something maybe I didn't I didn't sell a lot of records, but I came up off of Bitcoin this year. So, you know, like I think in the previous year in 2017, Bitcoin went from about a thousand dollars in value on the low end all the way up to over um I think it was almost 19k at one point in the year 2017 so you know people made a lot of money on it now the price did dip and you know I try to teach us, my students some of these market um processes and market 
market skills to basically understand, you know, never buy when the price is high and you want to wait for the, the price to dip and, you know, market principles, which is awesome because they need that skills no matter what, because whether it's cryptocurrency or it's a traditional commodity like gold or oil or corn, it, it operates the very same way. So it's getting our kids into these types of spaces where they can begin to, to make moves and think as an investor. So Denver was making moves as an investor. He was thinking as an investor. So Denver, you, you started telling the story about um, how Mr. Cook basically was trying to rope you into this whole thing and you were skeptical. Um, did your mind change and, and about what? Like, was it about um, just the value of the thing or was it, a, you know, like, are you a believer in Bitcoin in a different way? Uh, if there's money to be made, I'm going to be there. That's what type of, type of <laughs> mind I have. So, if, like I said, at first I was like, oh, this going to have to, I'm going to have to do a lot of other like research and stuff like that. I didn't really want to do it. My mom was on other things like my own business, my YouTube channel, my promoting, all that. So my mom was over there and then he was telling me about this. And then I just was like, all right, I'm going to try it. And I think I put like $50, $50 into Bitcoin and then distributed the 50 and changed it, exchanged it for some Gollum, some Dash, Litecoin, stuff like that. And then... And, and I seen like, oh, I'm just I'm I'm doing nothing. I'm just letting the money sit in my wallet and I'm I'm getting free money basically. But then on top of that, you have to be on top of like your marketing skills. You have to look at the market. You gotta stay on top of the market. Keep looking if it's dropping, because like Mr. Cook said, you don't want to buy when it's high and then ends up dropping, then you lose your money. So yeah, my mind changed right there. And yeah, I'm a firm believer of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as a whole. And you made you made money yeah. off of it, am I right, Denver? Yes, sir. So you know, and 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 you took some of your profits. So so it's not just about like we're not blind. We're not blind. Just I'm not teaching him like yo, just keep your Bitcoin and and just only buy Bitcoin or just make hey. So he made some money. If he doubled his money or tripled his money and he took profit out. You know, that's the main thing. Long as he, long as he feel like he came up out of the deal, that 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 to me is a, is a win win right there. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I, that's my way to get students um, into it is just give them some money, send them some Bitcoin, send them, uh, you know, some some. I sent students some Bitcoin. I've sent them Dogecoin. I sent them Litecoin, Ethereum, whatever I can get and transact with the quickest. I'll get it to them. And um, introduce them to this digital, this um, this new wave of um, the internet. People saying it's like the Web 3.0, um, really, which is the the financial layer or the economic layer of the web that's developing. So we're we're mm. at the we're at the threshold of of amazing things happening in the tech world, and it's important for marginalized and um, communities of color and communities that are on the fringes. To, to be at the table, you know, these advancements. So I'm not going to wait, you know, I don't have to be teaching at one of the elite or premier schools or quote unquote tech type of schools. Well, I don't want my students to have to wait to get into college 
and get on college campus to hear about some innovative things. I mm-hmm. want them to find out about it right now. And and in- so, interesting too, yeah. I also use cultural references. So the movie Dope is a movie Dope. Um, what's the, I forgot the main actor's name, but he's a really talented actor. Um, but it's called D-O-P-E. And it's I think it's on Netflix. You can look it up. But it was a critically acclaimed movie. Uh, about these young people growing up in uh, Los Angeles area. And in the movie, like the kid ends up involved in some type of um, business uh, arrangement and all the business is transacted through Bitcoin. So all the kids have watched this movie. So they had heard this reference of Bitcoin, 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 but they probably had didn't have anyone on the back end to show them in the real world. Like, yo, this is what this thing is. This is what it looks like. So I was more than happy to help be that be that voice and that person so the movie is called dope uh it's from 2015 and um it uh it looks like it stars shamik moore Shameek moore yeah uh, it's also in the um the get down for those of you who've seen the get down really yeah like so we'll, i will i will uh put links to those uh, in the show notes as well. Um, I do want to talk about, um, I want to come back, uh, Denver to your YouTube channel. Um, but I'm going to leave some time at the end for, uh, for, I'll leave a little, little plug time so you can, you can point people to the YouTube channel. But, um, I do want to come back to something that you were, uh, saying Emil about, um, the intersection of um, hip hop culture and the sort of new internet economy. Mm-hmm. And um, you're somebody, I think one of the reasons that your name keeps coming up um, when I talk to folks about what, what's, uh, what innovative practice is, is coming out of Pittsburgh, um, in part because of the work that you do with hip hop education and uh and working that into your practice and not just as an engagement point but also as a way to have deeper topics about things like technology and politics um and i wonder if you can you can talk about that a little bit what role um what role does hip hop have in uh in new tech and um what should educators be thinking about as it relates to these two things intersecting, because I don't think a lot of educators are thinking that way. I think that that uh, hip hop is sort of off on the side as a way to engage young people and and sort of a language that they either decide they need to be able to speak mm-hmm. or not. Um, but oftentimes it doesn't come up when they're talking about uh, teaching STEM or teaching media literacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if you can you can. I just want to give you a a soapbox for a minute and uh, talk to educators about the intersection between uh, STEM learning, media literacy and hip hop. I mean, culture. I think one of the benefits, of, I mean, like I, I kind of like starting to realize, really realize the, the, the more work I do in education, just the power of linguistics. Okay. So um, when you, I mean, we, we've heard the, the, the dialogues about like talking white and um, different things like that. Or like, okay, so if students, and now I don't want educators, you can't be or do something that you're not. So don't like, if you're not hip hop, if you don't, if you didn't grow up speaking slang, if you don't have 
um, a good understanding of of like hip hop linguistics and things like that. Like, don't don't do that. That's not that's probably not what you should do. <laughs> Stay away. Right. But it's critical for people who are versed in the, in, in, in hip hop linguistics and to, to bring those understandings to media analysis and medium um, media analysis and STEM worlds to be able to communicate these things to students because of, of course, you know, students can get it in a, communicated to them in a very traditional way. But I think when it's communicated with a hip hop sensibility in the hip hop worldview, it just really like, it lets the students know that this is for them too. And that what, what they're doing is, 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 um, that there's really not a distinction. So for instance, like Pro Tools is the number one digital, um, well, I don't wanna say number one, but it's it's one of the preeminent digital audio software packages that's used by most recording artists to produce their songs, add in effects to their vocals and et cetera, et cetera. Like in that program, you could talk about frequencies and, and different things, but how do you communicate that to the student? How do you communicate that to the lay person? I mean, it's not even, it's bigger than hip hop too. Cause even like, if I'm talking to my grandma or to an elderly person, they're gonna, the, it's the points of reference. How do I make something that's quote unquote, high tech or, you know, very technical, highfalutin, right? How do I make it uh, accessible to the lay person? So if the lay person is from a community where a lot of things are communicated with hip hop linguistics or sensibilities, right, then I need to give them points of reference that they can understand. Right. So for me, I'm looking and thank God, you know, for myself that I'm able to I can watch a tutorial from uh, Pro Tools that's conducted at, you know, using the, the technical jargon. Right of the digital audio world, right? And still understand and comprehend it. But I know that the only reason I can do that is because of my unique educational experience, which I've been privileged to have. And I can't assume that the majority of my students have or will have that type of of experience. So I need to instantly make it accessible to them. So that's my role as an educator is to almost like not, not just translate, but really like, transmute it in a way that is like accessible and digestible and that they can say, Oh, Oh, I get it. Oh, okay. And then from that point on, just break down that intimidation factor. Cause to be honest, that's really what we're dealing with when we deal with a lot of technology and our students is like, if I put up a screen, a black screen with some green code on there, it could be HTML, CSS instantly, not just inner city kids, but some middle American kids, some kids from different backgrounds, some of our parents, some of our elders, some some women, you know, some young girls, they're going to say, oh, I, that's that's hard. Oh, my goodness. That's that's such a challenge. I can't do that without even. Like gazing their eye on the text to see actually what what is there, let's begin to decipher this. So that's the role of the hip hop educator in these STEM spaces is that we have to, like, make it. Nah, you can do this. Let's let's really break this down. Let's see what that is. Okay, so H1, that means a heading. There's different size headings. There's one to six. So, you know, and that's just a, a very small example, but really to make it accessible. And it's, it's more than just the linguistics too, but it's really just 
connecting with the students, understanding where they're coming from, what what will resonate with them. You know what I mean? Listening to them, having them break it down, sharing, you know, just it's just an authentic learning experience with the students and, and creating as many authentic learning experiences as we can as we can have with them. Yeah, I hope, I hope that adds some clarity. It does. Well, it it adds a lot. I mean, it gives me more questions, uh, more questions than answers, which is a is a good thing. That's uh, that's good conversation. Um, I guess what's on what's on my mind after you said uh-huh. what you just said is uh, I, I wonder, you know, as a as um, a white educator who works with uh, students of color, uh, the idea of uh, and and I think that it's becoming uh, more understood and, and there's more interest now in the idea of, of code switching. Uh, you know, that's like a, a, a term that people tend to know and understand in, in how we think about, uh, you use the word linguistics a lot, which is what um, made me think about mm-hmm. code switching. And, um, and one of the things that I I uh, don't know if I'm uh, you know I'm not a hip hop educator, uh, but uh, I do know what role it plays in in my life and in in my students' lives, um, and I wonder the degree to which um, I, I think that one of the things that in needs to happen in order for uh, people to be able to code switch and and understand the linguistics of of uh, different cultures and different people is there needs to be a sort of stepping stone. Um, and, uh, I wonder the degree to which hip hop education isn't a wonderful stepping stone, uh, to be able to code switch from the language of hip hop to the language of technology and the language of, of new sort of, uh, digital things, because, um, the engagement point is there with hip hop. And I know so many, uh, students over time who have come to become technical people because uh, what they wanted was to contribute something uh, to hip hop culture. So um, it's not really a question. It's, it's more an observation and what I'm thinking about as you're uh, feeding back to me. Um, So, so I'm, I'm kind of learning as you're, as you're Mm -hmm. talking. Yeah. I almost think um, just to also add, it's not, I want to almost say like I'm a hip hop educator, but it's, you can almost say it's a, um, pop culture educator. Yeah. Sure. It's almost like a pop culture educator because I'm I'm not only teaching them about hip, I'm not only using hip hop as a, f- a frame of reference but I'm also using the gaming world. So I'm talking about Fortnite on a daily basis. I'm talking about what's happening in the world of gaming. I'm talking about what's happening in the, in the world of fashion. You know, so many different arenas that is is not just exclusive to to like hip hop music. And, and culture, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I want the, the educators listening. You don't, I mean, for me, it originates with hip hop culture. That's a big part of the community and the students I work with. But for you, it might be just pop culture, youth culture. What's, what's, what are the youth in your environment? What are they talking about? What are they dialoguing about? What are they spending time on? Which YouTubers are they following? What, what are the dialogues that they're having? You know, because, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and th- and that's why where I don't I hope that people don't hear what you first said about um, you know if you're not uh, if if the linguistics of hip hop is not your uh, your bag then don't 
don't try to put it out there or or um, become something. Yeah, that you're I just not. caution them against that because it's, it's I what, don't want them to come off as inauthentic, which is um, something that you know you just yeah. don't want to do. Um, but you know, it's not that they shouldn't try. You know, just be yourself. But yeah, I thank you. I am. I am not against them being a youth educator, but just leverage leverage just the tools that you feel like are, are accessible to you. Yeah. And I think the more, the more, you know, um, the more it improves your practice. And, and, uh, I think a lot of times adults, whether you're an educator or not, I think adults, um, uh, are sometimes afraid to dig in and, and understand what's on the, what young people are listening to and, and, uh, seeing and talking about and thinking about and, uh, where that, where that is um, the culture of hip hop, uh, they shouldn't be any more reluctant to dig in and do some homework than um, than any other mm-hmm. topic. Um, Denver, coming back to the YouTube channel, um, tell me what it is you cover, and I'm curious to talk about you as a creator. Uh, so my YouTube is basically just entertainment. At first, it was like a, a little gaming channel. Like I just did like 2K, like the basketball game did them type of videos just for entertainment and then i started to build a little following off but i have 1.5 thousand or 1500 subscribers and it was just for fun just little entertainment videos some skits stuff like that it was just me having fun with youtube just working it out wondering about ad revenue stuff like that tell uh for people who don't know uh nba 2k i can't imagine who (laughs) that is um but tell them what NBA 2K17, 18, a game comes out every year. It's the main basketball game. So, and I, I think a lot of adults don't, uh, who don't have, either don't have kids at home or just don't spend a lot of time on YouTube, don't realize how much uh, culture between YouTube and, um, and uh, Twitch and other spaces where uh, creators are, are constantly producing even just what that culture looks like. So can you just describe the kind of the, the genre that you fit into on YouTube? Um, Cause if, if you go find you, I guarantee people are going to find, they'll find, uh, you know, thousands of other creators who are doing this type of video. And if you haven't seen it, um, it, it might be uh, hard to believe. So can you sort of describe the genre? Like if I'm going to go um, see somebody who does a channel, that's like a let's play channel or, uh, I get it's just enter, an entertainment channel. Uh, like like I said, it was like a gaming channel at first, and then to break down gaming, it was more of two K NBA two K, and then I shifted over to in real life videos, which are like skits, vlogs. Vlogs are like video logs of you what you're doing that day, or if you do something fun, or you just want to put that video out of what you did that day. That's what a vlog is. Uh, shifted from gaming and then I went to in real life. Then I went back to gaming. Then I did a little bit of both, but now I don't really upload. I'm more into my own business, trying to make money. I'm graduating, trying to figure out what I'm going to do after high school, all that. So I really don't have time to upload on YouTube anymore. Mm. And then I think, I think just to add on to like what Denver said, for for my generation and probably your generation too, Mark, it's like 
we grew up wanting to play the video game. Now we got a generation of kids who are who are comfortable watching other people who are better than them at the game play the game and teach them how to play. So like there's a whole entertainment category for all the educators out there who don't know. There's a whole category of of YouTube videos and content out there of people playing a game that young people like to watch. They like to watch other people play the game. So if you don't know Ninja, Ninja's Uh, one that people are watching constantly. Uh, What's the guy? Pretty, what's the pretty boy Fredo? Pretty boy Fredo. He was a 2K YouTuber too. And he transferred into real life. But Fortnite YouTubers like Daquan. Daquan, Daquan. Daquan, yeah. Myth, Ninja. Everyone basically shifted over to... Fortnite. Fortnite is, is making a, uh, a meteoric impact in the gaming world. If you if you if you didn't if you weren't yeah. aware, PUBG, PUBG, but better Royale games overall. Yeah. Uh, Daquan, I've seen. Uh, I'm gonna check out some of the other. And ones. he's a black YouTuber. Um, TCM, it, it's TSM. Yeah. Where I first started to really get um, dive in and and check out what some of these guys are doing is is uh, I have an eight year old and and he pretty much learned. Uh, most of the games he knows how to play, he, he learned that way, uh, watching other people do it for hours. And, uh, Minecraft was probably the, the first and, um, Mm -hmm. uh, watching, uh, people like Stampy and, uh, Dan TDM and, and, uh, those guys play. Um, I think it's a, it's a genre in and of itself that I'd love to do an entire episode on because I think that, um, there's so much to talk about as it relates to uh, peer-to-peer learning and and mentorship that happens on platforms like YouTube that uh, we're not yet talking a lot about. Um, Emil, I want to uh, respect your time, and um, I have lots more we could be talking about, but I want to ask you one question just to kind of wrap, and then... Um, and uh, and then we can also point people to any of the projects you want to uh, where they can learn more about what's happening um, with you and your work. Okay. Uh, uh, the question I want to ask you is um, if if you could scale one idea that you feel best characterizes um, the values and pedagogy that you stand for, um, what would that be? Man, forget the rules, man. Forget the rules. That, that's the idea that. Forget the rules. Like we don't need some cookie cutter curriculum that somebody designed that that doesn't work with our kids. Like, you know, break all the rules. Like that's the problem. You know, I've always done more learning outside of the classroom than inside the classroom. Um, give the kids the stuff that they need. Give the kids act. Give the kids access to the technology. Give them educators who's not gonna restrain them from using it. From using it, like. And let them let them create, let them create. And if there's problems with what they create, then there's dialogue. Then that's valuable dialogue that needs to happen. Um, if if it's if it's with crypto and there's a problem with it, there's a learning experience there. The problems create learning experiences. Like, um, you know, I don't want I don't want my kids to do robotics and and open up some little robo box and put the pieces together and follow step, you know, the, 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 the 25 or 100 pre pre-designed lessons. And no, I want the kids to just create what they want to create and, and jump right in. And I want them to, you know, I want to, it has to inspire them, you know, 
Like, we have to teach them. We got to teach them to dream big, you know, and dream big. And maybe it's too, maybe sometimes their dreams are too ambitious. But, but through, like you talked about the iterative process, like through that process, they'll have to actually have to loop back and say, oh, well, we missed some basic steps. Let's think more intentionally about that. So, you know, that's where I see things. That's, that's what, if I could scale something that I do, it would be that. It would be it would yeah. be like the risk taking things that I do in the classroom. Like, oh, you played that song? Yeah, I did. Yep, I, I, I we addressed that topic. Yep, we sure did. You know, like my kids got a video they want to talk about and digest from a media um, analysis point of view. Like, let's do it. Um, you yeah. know, that could be from something that I find highly objectionable. You know, to something. Um, I, I I find highly stimulating and intellectually engaging, but you know what? Either way, I need to have the dialogue. I need to meet the, and embrace the students where they're at. And then I mean, like with the money I talked about, which is if I can't put money in a student's pocket, if I can't teach them a skill that, that they can become, uh, add some type of, um, you know, monetary value to the, the to their life, then I feel like I'm doing them a disservice and I'm potentially wasting their time. You know, I mean, there's value in having intellectual discussion and dialogue and, and, and introspective thought. Um, but, you know, in the digital, and I do that with my students and there's tremendous value in that. And I don't want to negate that, but I also want to teach them, you know, how to make a graphic, how to do graphic design in a way which they can then, you know, make thumbnails for people YouTube channels, if and they can get paid or compensated, they can make flyers for people's pool parties or, you know, lawn businesses, and they can make their own business cards, and you know, they can edit their own YouTube videos, or they can edit and film someone else's videos. Um, you know, they can they can start investing in cryptocurrency, and and you know, so I just want to give them this some access, and then get out of their way, and then. And then if I'm and then if I'm around, be a guidepost if they have questions or concerns. And then many in many instances, I'm watching them and learning from them, and seeing which directions they take it and spin it and, and cool things that they do. And then I implement it into my own toolbox. What was the reaction from your colleagues when uh, they heard that you were giving students money over cryptocurrency to to use? Uh, in order to learn how it worked, what was their reaction to me giving them some money? You know what? I probably I wouldn't be surprised if my colleagues know, you know, because I'm not like that's another thing. I'm not really about self promotion and like I kind of just do what I do, and I don't do it for my colleagues to know. I do it for I do it for my students. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I'm not gonna. It's like I don't I don't have to tell my colleagues what I did or, you know, if it comes out, I more care that they know that the students are working in the crypto space or have knowledge in that in that area. But um, specifically about me giving them crypto, um, I don't think they I don't think the majority of them know. And those who those who do know, they know it's just like a nominal nominal amount. And it's not really like it's not really anything. Now, Bitcoin goes to a million dollars next year. You know, I'll probably be going back mm-hmm. through my transaction history and like, oh man, I shouldn't have gave I shouldn't have gave that kid uh ten thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, you know. But <laughs> but until that problem arises, uh I think even then I'll still be yeah. fine. 
be a pretty high class yeah. problem. We we learn more about each other from uh, from remake learning and the network in Pittsburgh. And I just want to make sure that we give a shout to them and that you get a, an opportunity to talk about how your work has intersected with the network. And my question for you is um, is how the network uh, how does the network benefit your work and and vice versa? They've been allies, you know, like. Um, Ani Martinez, Sunana Chan, uh, Dr. Temple Lovelace. I mean, they've just been folks who have like amplified um, the work that I've done. They've found opportunities to support, empower, um, really just add that validity, that stamp of approval um, to the work that I've done, which, you know, is valuable, is is meaningful to me. I think it's, it's meaningful to the students because they actually end up giving my students um, access to amazing opportunities and um, experiences. It's also been um, empowering for me to engage in a lot of the remake learning activities um, throughout the city and dialogues and, and, and conversations that they've hosted about racial equity. And, you know, I can come to those conversations myself as a African-American, as a minority and uh, one of the few African-American male educators in the state of Pennsylvania, right? Or uh, in this, in education period. Um, and I can, I can approach it as like a know-it-all, but ultimately, you know, I want to learn. I want to be supportive of my white colleagues who have, you know, or whatever ethnicity they bring to the table who really in, sincerely want to engage with our students. You know, I think, um, we need to like move beyond so many of the barriers and labels that have like prevented us from connecting and, and growing together. So I'm learning a lot from the remake learning network. Um, I think they're learning a lot from the work that hip hop ed is doing the work that I'm doing. And we're just really seeing that they want to do innovative things with STEM and tech and, and really like highlight educators who are, remaking and redoing and reinventing and updating this work of education. And then, you know, that's what we see ourselves as, as hip hop educators. And I think we're adding value there because we might be bringing like cultural, cultural values and cultural aspects and um, creative aspects and things that may have been overlooked to the table that these are essential into remaking and learning that it can't be all uh, motherboards and, and um, soldering iron and, you know, soldering uh, tools and um, microchips, right? It's gotta be, it has to be a mix of analog and digital. And I really think that that's um, what, what I've witnessed through remake learning is, is a nice, um, confluence of both the analog and the digital, right? The digital is where we want, where, where things are headed and where they are today and where they're going. And, but the analog is going back to the essential questions that educators have asked for thousands of years, you know, how can we inspire the next generation? What are the problems that we need to solve? How can we support the next generation? How can we pass and pass on this wealth of information that we have received? How can we be good guardians of, of, of this responsibility of calling ourselves educators. Emil, if, if educators want to contact you, um, about either 
um, lessons related to uh, crypto and blockchain, or maybe they want to talk about um, immersive uh, and and VR uh, 360 video. Um, how would they do that? Do you uh, is social media the best place to? They can catch me on social media. My um, handle on Twitter. I primarily just really operate off of Twitter, um, and it's at A M I L. C-O-O-K. So it's at Emil Cook, which is my first and last name. Um, they can also shoot me an email at emilcook at gmail.com. So either either those methods um, should work to getting in touch with me. Every Tuesday night from 9 to 10 o'clock, I'm on Twitter representing with Hip Hop Ed. We have a different educational themed um, Hip Hop Ed chat every Tuesday night from 9 to 10 so today's Monday, meaning tomorrow at nine o'clock, I'm going to be online Easter Standard Time um, discussing, you know, our chat for that that week. And it's a different chat It's a different chat topic each week. Last week, we broke down um, Childish uh, Gambino's This is America video. Um, but the chats change every week and it's always something relevant and um, inspiring for us as an educational community. So come through. Link up with myself is not just me. We're not out here alone. And for a lot of years, when I was uh, first entering the field of education and I was working in juvenile justice, uh, is a it's a it's a lonely feeling. You feel like, oh, I'm one of the only black male educators, or I'm one of the only educators who grew up listening to hip hop who really come from this culture, or I'm one of the only educators who talk to my students in this manner, or use slang, or do this, or would show my kids this. And then you come on to hip hop ed. And you see, no, there's, there's many of other. So there's a large community of us all around the world. And we share resources. We build. We build each other up. We support each other. And then that's what we do. So come on and join me. Join join the movement. Um, we've got a lot of work to do. And uh, we're happy to have, you know, you guys listening in. So I thank you, Mark, and uh, everyone out there for listening. Emil, it's been a huge pleasure talking to you. Um I hope we get to do it again yes. soon. Please thank uh, Denver for me. He he split at a certain point in our interview, uh, no doubt, to go and work on his uh, his business. Yes. <laughs> which seemed like a priority. Emil, thank again. you, Mark. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share with me, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode one, an Olympic fully clothed hotel pool swimmer. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. This show would not be possible without support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org. <laughs>